So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. We'll be finishing this chapter this morning. While you're turning there, just in my own praying and thinking about what lies ahead, where we are today in the world and what's happening economically, what's happening globally, uh, the push for our president to step aside, the, the pressure is becoming more bipartisan. People are uh, throughout the world. I just saw a, uh, an article yesterday on what I would consider a liberal news a source that said, based on a survey, 50% of Americans want the current president to step aside. So our country is in turmoil, regardless of what you think and all that. I mean, for, for that to happen in a nation... Right, it's it's craziness. There's there's things happening. Uh, things are happening in the world. America is becoming weaker in the eyes of the rest of the world. The terrorist organizations are ramping up. Looking at how we botched our withdrawal from Afghanistan, Al Qaeda is ramping up. North Korea is ramping up. I mean, things are changing. It's changing quickly, and we have to be ready. We have to look up for our redemption draws nigh. I'm anxious to get to Matthew 24 and 25, so obviously a few more weeks before we get there, given that we're finishing chapter 19. But I've already mentioned to you, just uh, I believe God's been putting it on my heart to go to uh, the book of Daniel when we finish the book of Matthew. Um, And normally I don't have plans, like a teaching plan this far in advance, but uh, I just feel like there's been a very clear direction that we're going to go from Matthew to Daniel. I believe we should go to the book of Acts next to just talk about who and what is the church and what we should be and get back to our roots and the dependence on the Holy Spirit. And then I know we just taught the book of Revelation, but I believe the Lord wants us to go back there and do it again and go through it and understand what is happening in the light of the current world of what's happening that we need to go back. So we're, we're probably a good year and a half away from that at this point. But I, I believe that's the path ahead, you know, for us should the Lord tarry. So just something to pray about, something to hopefully get excited about. Finish Matthew, go to Daniel, book of Acts, book of Revelation again. And actually by the time we get there, uh, who knows, right? Uh, we could be living in the Uh, the very end point of the last days before the Lord's return, uh, if he tarries that long. So Matthew chapter 19, this morning, we are picking it up in verse 13, and um, reading down to verse 30. I think, Mitch, I think I forgot to put that scripture in there, so don't worry about that this morning. So let's read from 13 down to, uh, well, down to 22. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Now behold, one came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, 
you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's go ahead. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of glory, of his glory, You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit everlasting life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word this morning and may you... Just speak to us, Lord. Bring to us what we need to hear this morning as you minister. Lord, may our hearts be open. May you bless our time of worship. May you bless our time in the word. May you bless our offerings. May the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we left the, uh, the hearty issue of divorce last week, uh, not a pleasant topic, but one that we had to cover because the scriptures cover it. And that's what we do as Calvary Chapel. We're very committed to the verse-by-verse exposition of scripture and not skipping anything, not skipping anything that's difficult. Uh, you know, Jesus laid down a principle there that except for uh, sexual immorality or fornication, uh, adultery, uh, we should stick it out. And we say, why? Why would he say something like that? Why would he say that about the institution of marriage? And uh, as we were looking through that last week, I hope it came through clearly that uh, in part what he was talking about, that image was something that God established to be a reflection of the relationship between the husband and the wife that that reflects back to who God is. It it speaks of how God is a relational God. And uh, God's heart grieves when families go through that, when marriages go through that. And as we studied it last week, remember Jesus said in answering the scribes and the Pharisees that from the beginning, It has not been this way. This is not what God's heart, what God's intention was. Why did Moses allow it? Well, he allowed it because of hardness of heart. And so 
we looked at that issue last week fairly sternly, the issue of hardness of heart and where hardness of heart can lead us. And of course, hardness of heart doesn't just affect marriages and cause us to end up in a bad place, potentially with divorce, but a hard heart can lead us to many places that are not good in our relationship with the Lord. So Jesus, as he goes through this passage this morning, we come to uh, the rich young ruler in in just a few minutes, we find that he's one who sort of had a a semi-hard heart, meaning he was showing this inclination toward the Lord, but there was a point beyond which he wouldn't go. And so we'll talk about that as well. So in verse 13 here, then little children were brought to Jesus to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. Now the other two gospels, Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 18, speak to this. And in Mark chapter 10, it says, then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. And in Luke 18, it says, then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. So we understand here by putting the composite of the picture together from all the Gospels that that little children, potentially from infants all the way up to to young toddlers, were brought to Jesus. And as that happened, the disciples were there being the good bodyguards that they were protecting their master. You know, they were important, sort of surrounding Jesus, protecting him from the evil little children coming up to him. And Jesus, of course, loved children. And he said there in verse 14, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And in, again, in Mark's gospel, he went on to say, assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And in Luke's gospel, he says, assuredly, I say to you, who does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So Jesus wanted the children to come to him. Now, it was a common practice by rabbis to have children brought to them to be prayed over, to be prayed for. And uh, we know that Jesus laid his hands on them and he prayed for them. Now, this brings up an interesting issue with children. Now, from the point of view of the church, from the point of view of the Christian faith, we need to understand that the kids are always the next generation. And we need to bring our kids before the Lord. In fact, when we do what we call or practice as uh, baby dedications or child dedications, we do that for the purpose of bringing them before the Lord. And some of the best ones I've seen done over the years is as uh, people bring their young children up and give the, the pastor an opportunity to lay hands on and to pray for that child, the parents are also saying before the community of faith, hey, we are, we are committing ourselves to the Lord before you, our friends and our brothers and sisters, that we are going to raise these children, and as it says in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, to bring them up with the discipline and the instruction that comes from the Lord, or one other, other translations say, in the nurture or the training and the admonition of the Lord. And so when we, we do that, we do that in such a way that we say, and hey, by the way, we want you to help us. And, and we want to help you. We, we want to 
covenant and to commit ourselves to being committed to raising our kids in a godly way. And we need to do it at all ages, as long as God has given us an opportunity and a voice and influence in their lives, then we need to exercise that godly biblical authority and wisdom in giving them counsel and and raising them in the ways of the Lord. You know, when our kids are younger, uh, we can tell them, do this, don't do that. But as they get older, the way we interact with them has to shift because now they're beginning to make their own decisions. And probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do as a parent is to take a step back and say, well, as they've gotten older, go ahead. And I know they're going to make a mistake. I know they're going to fail. I know there, there could be some pretty dire consequences to their decisions. It's not that I don't say anything. I do say something. We do say something and we pray for them. And you should be praying for your kids, parents. Even when they get older and they move out of the house, you should be praying for them. Because, you know, even if our kids rebel, even if they choose not to embrace the faith that we brought them up in, and the point does come where they have to make their own choice. You understand that, right? They have to make their own choice to follow the Lord. And even if they might not choose that path, or at least initially, we still should be praying for them. You see, they may be able to, at that point, outrun our instruction, our principles, our guidance, our rules, but they cannot outrun the Lord. They cannot outrun your prayers. And so Jesus gladly took these children, brought them in close, laid hands on them, prayed for them. And wouldn't you love to know what Jesus did there? What did he pray? What did he say as he prayed over those kids? You may remember the story, which is where we sort of have derived this practice from in the church today of praying over kids. And it really comes from the story of 1 Samuel when Hannah uh, was blessed with a child near, uh, in the latter part of her life. So in 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, she had said that she would dedicate her child to the Lord. And so uh, now the man Elkanah, who was her husband, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and the vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned. Uh, I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So she was not only dedicating her child to the Lord, but the time would come as we get to the end of chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. She says, uh, as she said, oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman saying to the priest who stood by you here praying to the Lord for this child, I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, also, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives and he shall be lent to the Lord. And so they worship the Lord there. And of course, if you know the story, Samuel, the young boy at that point, stayed in the temple, served under Eli, and learned the ways of the Lord. And of course, the Lord used him as the first great prophet of Israel, the first great priest there. And so again, just to to encourage us, you know, pray, don't give up, don't lose heart, and uh, keep your kids ever before the Lord. It's important for us to do that. And kids, you should know, You can't outrun the Lord. You can't outrun the prayers of your parents. You can't outrun the prayers of the church. Uh, You know, we pray on Wednesday nights, and a lot of times we get prayer requests. Could you pray 
for my child, for my son, for my daughter. They're going through this. They're, they're falling prey to peer pressure. They're choosing to walk away from the Lord. They're not walking with the Lord right now. They're choosing to do this, that, or the other thing, but they're not walking with the Lord. And, and I want you to know we do uh, pray for you. We pray for your kids. We pray for our kids. And so let's all, if you will, covenant this morning that we will continue to do that because it's the next generation. And our kids are at a critical age. You know, the statistics tell us that leading up to roughly 18 to 20 years old, if they haven't chosen at that point to follow the Lord, made a conscious decision on their own part to do so, and we all know this, life gets busy, life comes in, it takes over. We're going to school, we're going to to college, we're going to work, whatever it may be, and life takes over. And if we don't develop those godly habits up front and stick to them, then it's harder when you get down the path to pull back the reins and say, okay, something's wrong here. I need to make a change in my life. And so we need to pray that they would understand. And hopefully they've learned from us by watching our example of how we walk with the Lord and how we pray and that we take time out. You know, we don't do what we do in our personal devotions to be seen by others, but at the same time, Others do see what we do, and hopefully it becomes an example. Now in verse 16, now behold, one came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And again, the other uh, scriptures here, Mark chapter 10 and Luke, they both say, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So whether this, this man, this young man came and said that I may have eternal life or that I may inherit eternal life, he comes to Jesus and he says before him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life or that I may inherit eternal life? Isn't this reflective of the nature of all of us? We want to know what we must do to get in God's good graces. It's sort of that works-based mentality and it's even crept into our, our Christian lives. You know, we, we say this till it's worn out, but I want to repeat it this morning. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It's a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, or with God the Father through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to God on the basis of grace by faith, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. And yet this man comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what, what must I do to inherit or to, to have or to obtain eternal life? And Jesus says in verse 17, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Now this was not a casual statement in passing that Jesus made. Jesus was, was literally making a statement here by saying this, And I believe what he was saying is that if you're calling me good, then you must recognize that I am God. And I believe that this is a statement, a pointer to the deity of Jesus. Because either Jesus was saying, I'm no good, or he was saying, I'm God. And I believe he was saying, in light of everything else we know about our Lord, that he was God. He says, but if you want to enter into life, that is eternal life, because the man came asking about eternal life. 
If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, I thought Jesus was pretty clear there. He said, keep the commandments. Every Jew would have understood that he meant the Ten Commandments. And the, the ruler, the young man, said to him, which ones? Isn't that just like us? Okay, well, Lord, there's a lot of commandments. Ten's a lot. So which ones specifically should I be paying attention to? You know, just give me the Cliff Notes version of what I'm supposed to do here. Now, let's just pause for one second to talk about this man that we call the rich young rulers. You look at all three gospel accounts, we learn that he was rich, that he was young, and that he was a person of, of great influence. We aren't told his age, but let's just say for the sake of discussion that he's probably in his 20s, maybe even early 30s. This man, if we were putting him in our context today, might have been someone who you know, started a, a dot-com business and it boomed and, and by his late 20s, early 30s, he was a millionaire or a billionaire. That would be the context of understanding who this man was, a person who was of great influence, who was a leader. And so this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and obviously he realizes something is missing in his life. He's being honest about that and we have to give him that. We have to understand that he is longing for something. He's observing Jesus and observing the ministry and he's watching Jesus heal people and, and redeem people and raise up the lame and all of those things that Jesus has been doing. And he's looking at his life and he's thinking, I've got it comfy, I've got servants, I've got all the money I could ever want. Everything is pretty much handed to me on a silver platter at this point. And he says to Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, well, which ones? And so Jesus plays along and he says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you count them, that's six, not all 10. So Jesus actually gives him the list of commandments from what we call the second table or the second tablet of the law. The first table of the law, the first four, specifically talked about man's relationship with God. And the last six talked about man's relationship with his fellow man. And so Jesus lists off the ones that talk about man's relationship with his fellow man. Shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. One person said it this way, to classify God's laws into lesser and greater is to miss the whole purpose of the law. For whosoever shall keep the whole law yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all, according to James. The law represents the authority of God and to disobey what we may think is a minor law is still to rebel against the authority of God. Of course, the young man thought only of the external obedience and he forgot about the attitudes of his heart. You see, this man was thinking about all these things that he's been doing in his life and he says here in verse 20, the young man said, all these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack, Lord? I've already done that. I've already checked all those boxes, Jesus. Think about that. 
Read back over that list. You shall not murder. Remember back in the Beatitudes, Jesus talked about murder is not just the act, it's the attitude. When Jesus talked about adultery and and lust, he says, if you have lust in your heart, it's the same as if you commit the act. You see, Jesus peeled the onion and got to the heart of the matter, which is the heart. It's our attitudes before God because God sees everything. God's not like us where we look at someone's external obedience or external deeds and we go, wow, man, that is a good person, man. Look at them helping the little old lady across the street, holding the door for somebody whose arms are full, you know, stopping in traffic to let somebody go. Man, they're good people. No, they're not. You're just looking at the externals. You're not looking at the internal. Only God can see the heart. Remember that verse in the Old Testament that says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. When the Lord was bringing David along and he was going to have David chosen as the one who would be the king of Israel. And so the young man said to him, what do I still lack, Lord? What is it that I'm missing? I've done that. And that's... Obviously not the answer, just keeping those commandments and being a a good person. And isn't this what people do? If you've ever watched any of the interviews on the streets with uh, Ray Comfort or anyone like that, and they go out on the mic and they say, with a mic, and they just interview people and they say, hey, you know, what about God and what's your relationship with him like? And people always end up in the place of saying, if they're not atheists or angry, Uh, talking about, well, you know, generally speaking, my good works outweigh my bad works. And I think generally God's going to let me in because, you know, I'm probably tipping the scales at better than 51% on the good side. So God's going to let me in. All these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? You know, it's interesting, we just went through the period Yom Kippur on the Jewish calendar. And the intent of Yom Kippur was that, you know, if you don't know this, Yom Kippur is a day of atonement. Because the temple was destroyed in AD 70 and there is no longer a sacrifice, what Yom Kippur was supposed to be was as they come to the day of atonement that people are thinking about their sin in the sense of bringing it to the Lord and, uh, you know, celebrating the day of atonement that God has atoned for my sins and celebrating the law and bringing the, the Passover lamb and celebrating the Passover and then, you know, remembering all those things and then thinking about the day of atonement when the, the lamb that was uh, given all throughout the year to take in and, and to, through the book of Leviticus, to sacrifice as atonement for your sin, and then to celebrate it on Passover, and then to celebrate it again on Yom Kippur. These reminders, these memorials, were to cause people to rejoice in the goodness of God and the salvation of God, but because that's all long in the past, for the past 2,000 years today, what Yom Kippur has devolved to in the Jewish community is that people stop and they think about their good versus their bad. And this is literally the process they go through today. They think about those divine scales of good versus evil. And most people end up in the place by their own judgment. Well, generally speaking, I'm more good than bad. And so this young man saying, Lord, you know, I've done these things. What do I still lack? Jesus says in verse 21, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Now 
Mark's gospel said, one thing you lack, go your way, sell, every, sell whatever you have and give to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and take up the cross and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now in this situation with this man, the rich young ruler, Jesus is dealing with the issue of his heart. So in general, we can look at this and say, do we generally as people struggle with things like money and possessions? I think we do. But Jesus was putting his finger on the pulse of the issue that was keeping this man from fully following Christ. When this young man said, what do I lack? And Jesus says, here's what you lack. You need to go and sell everything. He put his finger on something in the first tablet of the law. Something to do with his relationship with God. You know, it was the issue of you shall not covet. And this young man had reached the place where he was walking and living in a covetous way. His money and his possessions meant everything to him. He didn't possess his possessions. His possessions possessed him. And he was sad at this word. He was sorrowful for he had great possessions. J.C. Ryle said this about that passage. We must never forget that good feelings alone in religion are not the grace of God. We may know the truth intellectually. We may often feel pierced in conscience And we may have religious affections awakened within us. We may have many anxieties about our souls and shed many tears, but all this is not conversion. It is not the genuine saving work of the Holy Spirit. Unhappily, this is not all that must be said on this point. Not only are good feelings alone not grace, but they are also even decidedly dangerous if we content ourselves with them and do not act as well as feel. It is a profound remark that the mighty master on moral questions, Bishop Butler, is quoting someone else, that passive impressions, listen to this, passive impressions, often repeated, gradually lose their power. Actions often repeated produce a habit in man's mind. Feelings often indulged in without leading to corresponding actions will finally exercise no influence at all. What he's saying by all that is we can be in a place where we feel bad about something and we think, you know, one day I should do something about this. I should give this up. I should make this change in my life. But what he's saying is the longer we sit in that cycle and we just think, well, you know, one day I should do something about this. And we feel bad about ourselves and we think, well, you know, I should do this. I should do that. But we don't take action. That's where he's saying is just... We get in a cycle and it loses its power, it loses its effectiveness to drive us to the right answer, which is to surrender to the Lord. Now you may remember back in Matthew chapter 6 that we covered these words, Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
So what is the one thing that this man lacked? He lacked the ability to give up the things that were holding him. He lacked the ability to give up on the things that possessed him. And the question for us is, what are the things that we lack? Now, this young man was coming to Jesus on the outside of salvation, saying, Lord, what must I do to have or to inherit eternal life? And so this morning, if you're listening and you have never come to Christ, you've never trusted him, you may be saying, well, what, what is it that I have to do? Well, you believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is God's son, that he was sent from heaven by God to be the Messiah, to redeem us from our sins, to, to pay the penalty, to make the way so that we can have a relationship with God the Father, that our sins might be forgiven, that they might be under the sacrificial atoning blood of Jesus, and that we can now stand before God and be in his presence and be his son, be his daughter and be forgiven and to let the old things go. And it says, if any man or or woman's in Christ, they're a new creation, old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. But you see also for us as believers, we've come to Christ. There's a principle here that applies to us, which is what is it that's holding us back from fully following the Lord? And the same question applies to us as well. Remember, in the Ten Commandments, the first ones that Jesus didn't cite in Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me. This man had a God before the Lord, and it was his possessions, it was his money. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. In other words, you shall not have an idol. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and then remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and in so doing you honor the Lord. One person said, we see in the last place from this young man's case that one idol cherished in the heart may ruin a soul forever. This this one thing, this grasping on, in this case, to his possessions and his money, he was unwilling to let go. Jesus said in Mark's gospel, chapter 12, as the scribes came up to him and they asked a similar question of Jesus. They said, Jesus, which is the first commandment? This young man said, well, Lord, which commandments should I focus on? Uh, The scribes came to him and said, which is the first commandment of all the commandments? And Jesus said, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus took those two commandments and summarized all of the law. When he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, he took the first four uh, laws from the Ten Commandments governing our relationship with God, and he summed it up by saying, look, just love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. And the second, like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for if you do, then you won't sin against your neighbor, you won't think in a murderous way, you won't 
uh, covet what they have. You won't think of their spouse in a way that, you know, is adulterous in your mind or in your heart. And so Jesus says, this is the way. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said to his disciples at this point, because the, the, the rich young ruler had walked away, and he walked away very sad. He walked away unconverted. He walked away having not embraced what Jesus said. Jesus turned and said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's interesting as we look at some other scriptures in the book of Proverbs, it says this with respect to riches because Jesus called out what that man's issue was. Proverbs chapter 11, verse four, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Good advice. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28, he who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. So it's those who walk by faith and who are righteous by faith. They are the ones who stand before God. Proverbs 13, 7, there is one who makes himself rich, yet he has nothing. And one who makes himself poor, yet has great riches. That sounds like something Jesus said. In Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 24, Jesus, uh, in the parallel passage here, says, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. And so here's the issue, here's the principle for those who trust in riches or for those who trust in X, fill in the blank. You see, if you trust in anyone or anything other than the Lord himself, that has become my idol or your idol. And that has become the thing that keeps us from following God. Now, it can be anything, right? It can be bitterness. It can be unforgiveness. It can be fear, right? Fear is the opposite of faith. Faith involves risk. Risk is involved in trusting God. These things can keep us from fully following the Lord. Yes, it can be things like riches and wealth, and it very well may be. We certainly live in an incredibly materialistic and wealthy time, but what if all that changes? What if all the things I mentioned earlier in terms of how the world is changing, what if the stock market makes a massive correction pre-2008, if you remember that? What if all of our investments in our 401ks and our pensions and our retirements drop by greater than 50%? Are we all going to be here lamenting? Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? You know, all the experts say you need a minimum of a million bucks in your 401k to retire. That's what the experts say. Most of us are probably sitting here going, I don't have anything near that in mind. See, we can't trust in riches. We must trust in the Lord. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I, I take this illustration as literal. Jesus is talking about the eye of a needle like a sewing needle. There are some who say, and I, I don't buy into this, that 
there was this place in one of the gates where there was a gate within a gate or a door within a door that at, the, at, at night when it got dark, they would close the gates. And then if someone came in late and they had their chemical, camel, but they weren't going to reopen the gates because of the potential of robbers and thieves and people trying to get in, that they would open the small gate, take everything off the camel, make it get down on its knees, <clears throat> and basically have someone on a rape a rope on the front pulling the camel and someone pushing the camel and the camel could sort of shimmy on its knees and get through the gate. And they called that door the eye of the needle. I don't, you know, whether that's true or not, who knows? A lot of commentators say that. But I don't think that's the point at all of what Jesus is saying. When you think about the illustration, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God it makes sense. And when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Remember earlier, and back in verse 10, after Jesus talked about this issue of divorce and marriage, <clears throat> excuse me, his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Now his disciples have another revelation in verse 25. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, who then can be saved? And here's what Jesus says is one of the most important things we could ever hear. But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. What is he talking about? He's talking about salvation. You see, with men, salvation is impossible. It's just like what it says in the book of Ephesians, a verse that many of us have memorized. That you, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is impossible with man, but it's possible with God. It's only possible with God. And he says, but with God, all things are possible, not just salvation, but anything that we face. Now, you may remember in Luke 16, that story of the rich man and Lazarus. And as you read that story, and I went back and read it yesterday, the time came, uh, you know, the story is very brief. It's a little parable Jesus tells, and he says, uh, "In, in life... The rich man, it says, fared sumptuously every day, and there was a beggar, a poor man named Lazarus, who sat outside the gate, and basically he had nothing. And then Jesus fast-forwards, and he says, okay, they both died. And now we get into this heavenly scene, and Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. In other words, he's in heaven, and across this great chasm is where this rich man is, And he's being tormented. And now they're having this shouting conversation across this great chasm. And as they're having this conversation, this man is saying, you know, you got to send somebody back to tell my family about this. And Jesus is saying, look, in, in this life, you had it all. You had the riches, you had the wealth, you, you had the possessions. But that doesn't get you into heaven. That doesn't do anything for your eternal salvation. But with men, this is impossible. With with God, all things are possible. You know, all this talk about 
possessions and money. You know, people with means, with money, and there are many people who, throughout the scriptures, had money or who were blessed of God. Abraham, King Hezekiah, Solomon, David. There are many we can look at who God blessed with great wealth and great riches. You know, as Paul writing to Timothy said, he said, not that money is evil, but he said that money is the root of all sorts of evil. So what's being condemned here is not wealth and riches. It's what it does to us. It's that if it becomes an idol, and that's what happened for this man here. So what is our idol? What is it that we lack? But in coming to Jesus with men, our works, our reasoning, our logic, things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This idea of the possibilities of God has to do with our faith. For by faith you are saved. And then later the scriptures tell us that as you were saved, as you were called, so live. And the implication is we were saved by faith, we were called by faith, and so we should live by faith. You may remember there was a man who brought his young son to Jesus And he was demon-possessed and throwing himself into the fire. We find the story in Mark chapter 9. And Jesus said, how long has this been happening? And the man said, from childhood. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And then that, that man, that father, responded to Jesus and said, Lord, I do believe, help my unbelief. And in this case, of course, he's talking about the possibilities of what God could could do. And in that case, it was the, the possibility that God could and that God would heal his son and redeem his son's life back from the pit from being demon possessed. The possibilities of God. Or Paul, in a different way, speaking of the same subject, said in Philippians chapter 4, said, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. For I know how to be abased and how to abound, and everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And then he says this famous verse you all probably have highlighted, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Sounds an awful lot like with God all things are possible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ. With God, all things are possible. With men, things are impossible. The Holy Spirit can incline even the richest of men to seek treasure in heaven. He can dispose even kings to cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus and to count all things but lost for the sake of the kingdom of God. God can do that for anybody. You see, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? Then Peter answered in verse 27 and said, See, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. If that's the case, then we're doing pretty good here, aren't we? Because we left everything to follow you. So things are going to be good for us, right, Lord? Therefore, what shall we have? That's what Peter says in verse 27. 
And Jesus answers there and he says, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You see, with God, all things are possible. Trusting in riches, trusting in wealth, trusting in possessions, not going to get you there. Not going to help you, not going to make your life better. I know, well, we all think, I've been guilty of it as well, just saying, well, you know, if I only had a million bucks, I think of all the things I could do. Man, that'd be great, wouldn't it? But you remember Job. You remember Job was at that time probably the wealthiest man in the world. He was the most blessed man in the world. And remember that whole scene where Satan went in before God and requested permission to to tempt and to touch and to torture Job. And of course, God allowed it. And uh, Satan went back a second time and he says, he only blesses you, God, because you bless him. He said, if you remove your blessing, he'll curse you. And God gave him permission, said, okay, but just spare his life. Now, at the end of all of that, Job in chapter 42, having, you know, kind of gone through all of that counseling with his three friends and his own journey through it and reasoning through it and trying to understand what did God do and why and all of that. In Job 42, verse 1, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. You see, Job came to the point in his life where he said, I know that you can do everything, Lord, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld. You see, when we are in a place where we're going through something, Perhaps even a situation like Job where there's physical suffering, physical infirmity. Things are happening that are not good. In fact, things may be very bad. We cannot forget that God is sovereign, that God is in control, and that God has a purpose. God has a plan. Job, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah in chapter 32, verse 17 of his prophecy says, Ah, Lord God, behold... You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? Is there a rock so big that God's created that he can't move it? Or maybe you remember in Luke chapter 1 as the angel had prophesied to Zacharias and Elizabeth that she would conceive and have a son. And in Luke chapter 1... Verse 36, now indeed Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. This is the angel now speaking to Mary after delivering the good news to her, and he says, for with God nothing will be impossible. Why am I sharing this with you? Because whether it's salvation in the case of the rich young ruler, whether it's in the case of Job who had underwent tremendous trial and difficulty and pain and suffering, whether it's the father who brought the young boy who was demon-possessed to Jesus, whether in this case it was someone sad because they, they couldn't have a child. And now the Lord, in the case of um, Elizabeth, who was old in her old age, God made it so that she could have a child. 
And then God came to Mary, who was a young maiden who didn't have a husband, who was a virgin, and she had a child. All of these talk about the extremities of God, the possibilities of God. Mary's response was, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. That was that good news. Job's response was, Lord, there's nothing you can't do. Nothing can be withheld from the purpose of your hand. This was someone who had gone through the worst of the worst. And then Jesus says to Peter and to the disciples in their question about what, what are you going to do for us, Lord? I mean, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus says, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory. So he's talking about the last days when Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom. He says, when I sit on my throne of glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now that had to blow their mind because I think everyone thought that the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel would certainly have a place in heaven. But now Jesus is saying to these 12 disciples who, you know, who would become the 12 apostles, uh, minus Judas, of course. And he says that you would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, you're going to be in a place where you're judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, where does it talk about this? I mean, is Jesus just saying something off the cuff or what? No, in Revelation chapter 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting. And when we studied this and we went through it, we understood that this is referring to the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. And it says, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their their crowns before the throne. A little later later in Revelation chapter 5, now when he had taken the scroll, this is Jesus the Lamb, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. A little later in Revelation chapter 5, then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him. Revelation chapter 11, and the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God. And then at the end of the book, Revelation 19, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne. See, Jesus is saying to them, there's something that's going to happen to you in heaven that's going to go so far beyond what you can imagine. And it all falls under the heading of, with man these things are impossible, but with God all things are possible. And this points us to the end. This points us to the hope of heaven. This points us to the fact that we have to get our minds and our hearts and our understanding unstuck from the muck and the mire of this world, and set our minds on heaven, set our mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth, for we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. And Jesus says in verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children, regardless of the sacrifice you've made, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. With God, all things are possible. Whatever good things they had forsaken for his sake would be returned to them a hundredfold. In other words, they were not making sacrifices. They were making investments. 
Don't think of it as a sacrifice. Understand that we are investing. What are we investing in? Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Store up treasures and riches in heaven. You say we are investing, we are storing it up for the kingdom to come. I mean, talk about a 401k. We're investing in the heavenly 401k. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich. God himself. In Matthew chapter 6, and I would encourage you to go back and read this, beginning in verse 25 through the end, but in Matthew 6, 33, Jesus said this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. You see, this is God's math. Forsake everything, take up the cross and follow me. You'll say, but that doesn't make any sense, Lord. What's the plan? How am I going to make money? How am I going to live? Well, you just do what I'm calling you to do. I'll take care of the rest. To our human logical mind, that doesn't make sense. Faith doesn't make sense many times. But trusting God is the only way. Verse 30, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Here's what happened to Job. Verse chapter 42 again, and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much. That's, that's how God treated that servant. Then all his brothers and his sisters and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and they ate with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a ring of gold. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And then it goes on and talks about all the things the Lord blessed him with in those latter days. Is that a promise? Is this a prosperity doctrine teaching? Of course not. But this is saying that God is fair. God is equitable. God understands. God takes care of things. God does the impossible with the, with the possible. Let me leave you with this scripture, Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What is the race that God has set before you? How has he gifted you? What has he called you to do? Have you asked him? Are you seeking him? Lord, you've given me breath. You've given me length of days. How am I supposed to spend this for your honor and for your glory? And he goes on to say, Hebrews 12, 2, with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Once again, pointing us to heaven. So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us lay aside the sin and the weights which so easily ensnare and entangle us. And let us take up the cross and follow him. Why? Because with God, all things are possible. God calls us to faith, not to rationality, not to logic. He's given us a sound mind. He's given us the ability to think. We should use our brains. We're, he's not calling us to put our brains on the shelf. But he is saying that faith must trump our ability to logic 
uh, and to rationale and to think things out and to plan things out. We submit everything to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, you're the author of life. You, you, you know the beginning from the end, the book of Revelation. You're the Alpha and the Omega. Lord, you know. I don't know. I don't know what lies ahead. Do you know what this week holds for you? I have no idea. I know it's on my calendar, but I don't know what's going to happen. Only God knows that. With God, all things are possible. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for ministering to us, Lord. We bless you. We honor you. We worship you. We thank you for who you are. And Lord, we praise you, more importantly, for who you want to be in our lives. And may we open up our hearts and our minds and lay aside whatever it is that we lack or whatever it is that holds us. And may we, by faith, take up the cross and follow you daily. And to lay aside all the stuff and to follow you by by faith. Lord, like that man who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's probably the prayer of every one of us this morning. The flesh is willing, but the spirit is weak. Lord, strengthen the spirit this morning that we might follow you and walk in faith. We love you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's sing a hymn.